It's uh, in the middle of August, well, actually early August, and uh, half of everybody's gone, but we've got a lot of visitors with us. So we are in the middle of a series on church history, and we're trying to sneak as many of them in as we can before uh, I basically disappear for the next two months. Uh, I leave next Sunday afternoon, evening, uh, for uh, a brief stop in Birmingham, England, for a debate on the crucifixion, then I fly to Johannesburg, Durban, and then back through London, home a couple weeks, and then we're off to Germany for a couple weeks, so it's gonna be, uh, gonna be a crazy time, so we're not gonna be getting a lot of uh, progress made, unfortunately, in the church history series, so we're gonna try to sneak in as much as we can here. And last week we began uh, looking at the subject of Augustine. This is just sort of where we have come in our studies. Uh, has been, uh, we're not really doing it topically. We're sort of going chronologically, though you can't, it's impossible to do that in church history. Um, you have so many things happening at any one particular time. And uh, if you just take a slice out of history, and try to just look at, say, 10 years of church history, you'd really be befuddled as to how people came to the conclusions they came to and things like that. There are just so many different currents that flow uh, through history that uh, it's, uh, it's really easy to misrepresent history because of that. Uh, if people are not familiar with the context that, that gave form to things. And that's certainly the case with Augustine. We, uh, uh, in Reformed circles, you have a tremendous, uh, tremendously favorable uh, general view of Augustine. But at the same time, uh, I like to use Augustine as a really good example of, of a brilliant, brilliant mind, and yet um, an individual who was deeply influenced by the controversies of his own life. And if someone as smart as Augustine could end up with blind spots because of those things, same thing happens to us as well. It's, um, and of course, there are, there are people, uh, I remember good old brother Dave Hunt, who's gone on to be with the Lord. Um, and uh, he uh, used to go after Augustine big time and uh, said he was the first Roman Catholic and things like that. Augustine wouldn't have had a clue what in the world uh, uh, Dave was talking about at that point. But uh, I did mention last week that after the Apostle Paul, at least if you are a Christian in the West, you have probably been more influenced by Augustine's thought than, than almost anybody else. Um, you might say, well, what about Calvin and Luther and stuff? Well, yeah, but what was, what was Luther? Uh, I was, I'm doing a lot of reading on Luther right now because we're gonna be speaking in Eisleben and Wittenberg and all these places in Germany next month, and um, I was looking at uh, the collection of his letters, and uh, all the way past the period of his encounter at Worms with uh, the Diet of Worms, Charles V, so on and so forth, uh, his letters were signed Martin Luther Augustinian. Uh, he was an Augustinian monk, and it wasn't for uh, quite some time after that until he stopped utilizing that, uh, that terminology. So. Uh, he was deeply influenced. Anyone who's read the Institutes of the Christian Religion by Calvin recognized how deeply he was influenced. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, Augustine is behind so much of, of all of that that we have been deeply influenced along those lines, whether we recognize it uh, or not. 
And so knowing something about him is, uh, is important. We mentioned uh, a little bit about uh, the beginning of his uh, time of ministry, the fact that he was elected to office unwillingly when the Bishop of Hippo died. We talked a little bit about his conversion. Um, but I would like to, uh, in the midst of other things, keep in mind sort of a, a presentation that I frequently make on Augustine because I, I, I do think that it's helpful to us to understand, and uh, this has helped, I, I think, a lot of people understand why both sides in the Reformation, and of course we're coming up on Reformation Sunday, the 500th anniversary. I'm sorry I'm not going to be here for that. Uh, I'm going to be speaking uh, that weekend in, um, between Dallas and Houston. I guess that's just all one big place now. But um, anyway, um, big anniversary. It's, it's not going to be one of those anniversaries where once you go past, it's like, well, it's all over with because it really just starts a whole series of really important reformational dates, you know, uh, that's going to go way past my lifetime. Um, you know, in uh, 2021, we need to have uh, Diet of Worms Day. That sounds really great uh, for most people today. Um, they don't know what a diet is, uh, or the, the word has changed meaning. And Worms sounds great. Um, I guess there might be some some folks that would think that would be a good direction for us to go. Worms are much more sustainable than cows are, I suppose. But um, and <laughs> I can't imagine what that would taste like. But anyway, um, we, there's all sorts of dates that we can, be, we can be following over the next number of years and tying to uh, Reformation uh, issues, uh, coming conversion of Calvin and the first publication of the Institutes. And there's all sorts of things we could do if we would just... You know, put a little effort out to, to do it. Uh, 500 years ago this week, blah, 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 took place. So we could probably do those things. But um, in, in looking especially at uh, the subject of Augustine and his influence upon the Reformation, uh, I think it's very, very helpful to recognize the controversies that Augustine dealt with. And we talked a little bit about the first one uh, last week. I mentioned to you the scandal of Donatism. And the Donatist controversy, um, not only did it have to do, and we've already talked about it in the past. We've talked about the ex opera operato, ex opera operanti stuff. We talked about the sacramentalism that, that uh, was represented in this particular uh, controversy. But um, Augustine had to, this was a, an everyday issue uh, that he had to deal with because of how scandalous it was uh, that you were facing a divided Christian church in, uh, in North Africa. And... Augustine did attempt reconciliation with the Donatists. It's not like uh, there wasn't any conversation or anything like that. He did attempt reconciliation, uh, but failed in that attempt, especially because uh, the Donatists were based upon a very stringent uh, perspective. Uh, you guys don't have proper authority because of the apostasy back then. The hardliners really tended to be hardliners. And time didn't tend to soften those, those stances, even, even now that you're well past the period of persecution. 
it, you still were facing uh, real hardline feelings. And what is important to recognize, uh, I gave you this quote before, but I'll, I think it's one of those important quotes that we, that we have. Um, in his book, Tertullian and Augustine, B.B. Warfield uh, wrote the following. He said, the Reformation inwardly considered was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. Let me read that again. The Reformation inwardly considered was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. So what this means is at the time of the Reformation, both sides were quoting from Augustine. And you might say, well, you know, he was the biggest name, and so one side was misrepresenting him, the other side wasn't. Not really. Both sides could fairly quote Augustine against their opponents. And why was that? Why could both sides quote Augustine? Well, because of the controversies that existed in Augustine's life. The Roman Catholics could quote from Augustine in his anti-Donatist writings. The unity of the church, the nature of sacraments, things like that. The Reform could quote Augustine from his anti-Pelagian writings, the nature of salvation, grace. So did Augustine contradict himself? Yeah. Why? Because of the controversies he faced in his life. And if that's the case for him, then how much more so can it be the case for us as well? What we also need to recognize, this is extremely important, uh, at first Augustine resisted the idea of governmental infiltration, involvement in the Donatist controversy. But eventually he succumbed and military force, the power of the state, was brought to bear against the Donatists. And this is clearly, now remember, uh, Theodosius uh, declares the Roman Empire to be a Christian empire around 380. So this is right before Augustine's ministry. And at first, he's like, no, that, that wouldn't be proper. But eventually, he is convinced that it's more of a scandal that there is a divided church than it's a scandal that force would be used in theological issues. And could Augustine, in 390, look far enough down the road to see what could possibly come from his actions? No. No. I don't think you can hold people accountable for looking more than a brief stretch into the future in regards to what their actions might lead to. Uh, you cannot possibly know how things are going to be changed 50 years from now so that what you do now may have totally unintended consequences 50 years from now. Especially when you can't control all those other 
all those other things that create the context of 50 years from this point in time, let alone 500 years or 1,000 years down the road. However, looking backwards, we can surely, just as we looked at the Council of Nicaea and, hmm, Constantine's there. Hmm, the people that won't sign the creed are banished. Hmm, who enforces that? Well, the government does. Hmm. Okay. Well, what's the next logical step in that progression? You can make the argument that if you trace everything back through history, there wouldn't have been a Spanish Inquisition without Augustine's uh, accepting state involvement in suppressing the Donatists. Could Augustine have known about the Spanish Inquisition a thousand years later? Of course not. But that's how history works. Um, these things are all related. And when you ask, well, how did Augustine justify this utilization of external force in theological matters? Uh, it's interesting. He utilized the parable where Jesus speaks of bringing the people in to the marriage feast by force. Compel them to come in. Compel them to come in becomes the foundation for the idea of the use of compulsion in matters of faith. And since it's being done by the state, now the state and the church are becoming intertwined in an extremely dangerous fashion. Not in a way that could yet be seen in its full extent, but eventually when you, when you watch uh, the video we've watched a number of times here on uh, New Year's Eve's uh, called The Radicals, I think I've shown it like three times now over the past 20 years, so about every seven years or so, uh, we, we, we show the radicals. Um, and you, you see the state uh, persecuting peaceful people who simply want to baptize their own children uh, upon profession of faith, not upon birth. Um, and yet they're being persecuted and burned at the stake not only as heretics against the church, but as traitors against the state. How did it get to that? Well, Council of Nicaea, North Africa, Augustine, the Donatists, little step by little step by little step over time. You combine that with the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, the power vacuum that develops, the, the fact that people start looking to the church for leadership in these things, little step, Little step, little step at a time. And so that first uh, controversy that takes place in Augustine's life, the Donatist controversy, very important for many reasons. Many reasons is, indeed. Um, then I mentioned to you the Council of Carthage, which met in 397. And I just briefly mentioned to you the fact that uh, Augustine, of course, Augustine you can probably find his influence in almost any theological argument uh, that has been going on long enough in the history of the church. But 
Augustine had an extended dialogue and discourse with Jerome. Now, when we talk about early church writers, or really we're, at the, we're, we're in the transition now into the medieval period. It's right at the, the, not so much early church, it's not so much medieval, it's sort of right in the border right now. But there are not any bigger names at this time period uh, than Jerome and Augustine. Certainly you've got some pretty big names. Um, you've got, uh, we're going to see the Cappadocian fathers, Basil and Gregory and uh, all these other types of people. But Jerome and Augustine, you, you may recall at one point I mentioned to you that there were really only two early church writers who had full facility in both the biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. And that was Origen and Jerome. And the name Jerome should be familiar to, I think, any Christian, uh, simply due to the fact uh, that the translation that he was commissioned to produce toward the end of the fourth century into the very beginning of the fifth century uh, is still the most important uh, foreign language translation of the Bible in, in Christian history becomes known today as the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate, translated by Jerome, uh, was the Bible of the West from the fifth century through the Reformation. Even the King James translators were more at home in the text of the Vulgate than in any other text at all. Latin was the language of education and learning. Latin was the language of <coughs> advertising uh, in the 17th century in England. You pick up a newspaper and the advertisements are going to be in Latin. Um, this is the, the language of education and literature and, and everything. Um, which is why the first impetus to translate the Bible into English was so resisted by many because it was considered such a vulgar tongue, such a low-level tongue. It was, just the, it was, the, it was the tongue of the, of the uneducated farmhands, the people slopping the pigs. You don't, you don't take God's holy word and put it into the language of farmhands. Um, and so uh, even when you look at the reformers, uh, they very frequently would write in two languages. Luther would write in German and in Latin. Um, Calvin, when you look at the Institutes, when you look at the various editions of the Institutes, you have a Latin edition, then a French edition, then a Latin edition, then a French edition. Um, because he was French. Uh, some people don't, don't realize that. Oh, no, he was French? I can't believe it. I thought he was at least English? No, 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 no. German, maybe? No, no, no. Uh, Portuguese, something, not French. Uh, yes, he was, he was French. Um, and um, so uh, that Latin language just remained massively, centrally uh, important for a, a tremendous period of time. And Jerome is the one who uh, translated that uh, particular translation of the Bible. And it created tremendous ripples when it was first done. Well. Augustine 
uh, had a, an ongoing debate with Jerome. Uh, Jerome had gone to Bethlehem. He had uh, learned from the Jews uh, about the uh, canon of scripture that they themselves accepted. And Jerome realized what Melito Sardis before him had realized and what Origen and Rufinus and other people had all realized before him. And as the Jews had never accepted what we call the apocryphal books or the deuterocanonical books, the books that were written during the intertestamental period, the Maccabees and things like that. And so the only reason he translated them into Latin was because the Bishop of Rome, Damasus, told him to do so. Uh, but in his writings, he made it very clear that these are not canonical works. Well, Augustine had some facility in Greek, but almost none in Hebrew. And so he was deeply influenced by the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, as was, well, you know, up until this period of time, the, the Old Testament text for the majority of the church was the Greek Septuagint. There were very few Christians by this point. Well, almost none, except maybe in certain places in Palestine, uh, that could read Hebrew. And so the Hebrew Old Testament was pretty much a closed book to the vast majority of Christians. Um, so the Greek Septuagint was the only way that it was known. And Augustine labored under the misapprehension that the Hebrew canon, that the canon that the Hebrew people themselves accepted the Old Testament included what we call the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical works. And so he argued for them against Jerome, and of course, those who follow Augustine would be influenced by his opinions in the Council of Carthage. Um, in 397, was just basically a rubber stamp party for Augustine's views. I mean, by now he's already, uh, you know, he's, he's very well known in North Africa. It's still gonna be a few years before the city of God makes him known all around the world, but as far as North Africa is concerned, he's already been recognized as having tremendous theological insight. And so uh, the Council of Carthage in its Old Testament canon includes the deuterocanonical books primarily because of Augustine, even though he and Jerome were having this uh, debate over that particular issue at this very, this very time. So right around the same time as the fall of uh, Rome, and remember, we say fall of Rome, that, that envision, you know, in many of our minds, we see flames and ruins. And uh, when, when Alaric the Visigoth sacked Rome, he basically came in, uh, had a few beers at the pub and left. Uh, it really, you know, it's not, didn't do anything major as far as damage the city was concerned. It was just the idea that Rome had become so weak that it could not even defend itself against, uh, against barbarians. And that was the huge mental shock wave that went all across the crumbling Roman Empire. Right around this time, we have a British lay monk He's going to die in 419, and uh, his name 
is Pelagius. Dies 419. And he was... Um, well-educated, he, as so many people upon coming to Rome, was disturbed by the moral laxity of the people that he saw there. It's interesting that this bothered Pelagius in the 5th century, and almost exactly a 1,000 years later, 1510, um, well, it's 1,100 years, um, same thing happens with a, ironically, Augustinian monk by the name of uh, Martin Luther when he visits Rome. And the moral laxity that is seen there ends up having a major impact in his theological life as well. Um, but he was also reportedly disturbed by something Augustine had written that he had encountered. And it went along the lines of command what you will and give what you command. So in other words, the idea that he found very reprehensible was that in some fashion, God had to provide the supernatural ability for man to fulfill the commands which God had given to him. For Pelagius, that was a scandal. For Pelagius, everybody has the ability to fulfill all of God's commands in and of themselves without any extension of supernatural grace from God. So in other words, every man, and I... I realize we have some millennials amongst us, so every man and woman, or actually if we have millennials amongst us, we have to start down a row of about 48 different terms we have to use, but we don't do that. Uh, so I'm using terms in their historically rational and understandable generic forms. Um, every person, how's that, um, has, Inborn abilities, every person when they're born is a new Adam. There is no original sin. There is no sin nature. Every person that is born is a new Adam. And the reason for the uniformity of sin is because of the example that we have from everybody else, not because of a necessity of nature. So he denied that Adam's sin was relevant to anyone living today in the sense that we did not fall with Adam, nor did his sin injure any of us. He taught that every person is a new Adam, fully capable of making the same choice that Adam made in the garden. Adam's death did not cause the fall of man, and Christ's resurrection then does not result in the resurrection of humanity either. The entrance to the kingdom is by either law or gospel, for both are simply examples to help us to improve ourselves. Sinless perfection is possible, for no one is actually dead in sin. 
We sin because we see examples of sin all around us. Obviously, this doctrine denies numerous clear biblical teachings, but most importantly, it denies the necessity of God's grace in salvation. And so, long, long ago, back when I was, uh, I had lots of hair and big glasses like everybody did in the 80s. I don't know why we did that, but anyway. When I was in seminary, my uh, church history professor uh, illustrated it like this. And I've been stealing his example ever since then. And in uh, Pelagianism, what you have is you have man down here, and he's in a pit. And what Christ does is he comes along, and he offers assistance in the form of example. Example of love, example of upright living, it's, it's all an example. And the man in the pit has the full capacity to walk over here and climb up the ladder of himself. Um, he's not sick, he's not dead, he doesn't have a broken leg. Um, it's just all a matter of his will and he can follow the examples given to him both in the law and the gospel uh, to do what's right before God. There is no necessity of any uh, extension of divine grace. Uh, man has the capacity of basically pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. This is Pelagius' view. Now in opposition to this, you have Augustine and And uh, the man at the bottom of the pit is dead. That's, a, um, that's either a daisy or a tulip, depending on how you want to look at it growing out of his chest. Um, he is dead. And you can lower all the ladders down to him and shout all the encouragement you want down to him. He's dead. And uh, corpses do not respond well to encouragement uh, or, or anything else. And so what has to happen here is you have to have Christ come down and raise the individual to life uh, by his own supernatural power and take him out of the pit. So salvation is completely of grace. It's completely of God. Uh, man is dead in sin, is a rebel against sin, is, is resistant to anything that God does until there is a spiritual resurrection uh, that uh, will bring him back to life and so on and so forth. So Augustine, uh, he has you know, divine election, predestination, whole nine yards. Um, one place where we would differ with Augustine is he does have the idea of temporary Christians. Um, now some people, it's sort of difficult necessarily to argue, to, to nail all of this down, but uh, because of the sacramental system, 
you had some people that were part of the church but really weren't a part of the church. They really aren't a part of the elect. Only the elect persevere. So from his perspective, all of the elect, God has a specific elect. They're the only ones who will be saved, and they will persevere in the faith. Um, so this is his perspective. Now, so this is the battle that you have going on toward the end of Augustine's life. And so all his anti-Pelagian writings, his writings on grace, this is why the reformers can quote from him and utilize his materials and things like that, because on the nature of the gospel, uh, there's, there's tremendous uh, consistency here. But what happened is, Rome, by the days of the, by, well, Council of Trent, the Counter-Reformation Council, anathematized Pelagius, and, and Pelagius had been anathematized long before this. And that's why, you know, we all know this, I hope we all know this, uh, but the issue at the Reformation, and you all have heard me say this a thousand times before, but the issue of the Reformation was not the necessity of grace. Rome clearly taught and teaches the absolute necessity of grace. They, they condemn Pelagius. The issue at the Reformation was the sufficiency of grace, not the necessity of grace. Because this may have been Augustine's perspective, but once he died, man, this is just so radical to people. It's all of God and da-da-da-da-da that it didn't take long for the, a middle perspective to uh, develop. Oh, he shouldn't be smiling. And that is, man is not really dead in sin. It's really, really encouraging to turn around and see all my friends laughing at my, my overwhelming uh, artistic capacity uh, here. But uh, yeah, that looks really good, doesn't it? Um, mono brow, the whole nine yards. Um, but um, he is sick, broken leg. He can't, you, you, could, you could put down, you can put down the uh, uh, stuff for him, but he, he, can't, he can't climb out by himself. Um, he, he has been damaged, uh, sick in sin, uh, uh, just not able of himself. So you have to have, you have to have grace. Grace is absolutely necessary. But it's not enough. So Christ can offer all this assistance, and you can have something. This is called semi-Pelagianism. So sort of central to this is a concept called prevenient grace where you have a, a kind of grace that sort of, it binds up the broken leg if the guy in the pit wants it to. So the guy in the pit isn't a rebel. The guy in the pit isn't totally opposed to God. The guy in the pit has free will. And if he chooses then he can utilize, you, can, you know, you toss down a splint, you know, and uh, you give him the directions on how to attach the splint so he can drag himself up out of the, out of the, 
out of the pit, basically. So he needs help. He needs grace. Pelagius, oh, that's too much. But you can see grace neither necessary nor sufficient. Grace necessary and sufficient. Grace necessary but not sufficient. Okay? So, I don't know, 100-ish years after Augustine, you have the Council of Orange, and you start seeing in the Council of Orange a form of semi-Pelagianism. And if you look at Rome's uh, sacramental system to this day, you see that it is very much a semi-Pelagian system. Uh, prevenient grace, uh, the, the whole, and, and of course, uh, Wesley, uh, John Wesley, a lot of prevenient grace concepts involved with, with his thinking uh, as well. And so, uh, as, you know, by the time of the Reformation, you know, the swing has been through here and it's, it's you know, it's over here someplace. It's getting, you know, Pelagius is, is rising from the dead in, in, the, in the minds of many people. But still, uh, you, you, there was always this, no, 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 there has to be grace. Grace is absolutely necessary. It's just how sufficient is it? How powerful is it? Yes, sir. Uh, Jerome would, be, would not be nearly as, uh, as strong on uh, uh, soteriology as, as Augustine was. Uh, he was very much uh, focused upon monastic life and, and, and things like that. So he'd be much more in the, what would eventually be called the semi-Pelagian camp than Augustine would be. Yeah, definitely. Yes, sir. Well, well, you know, they're, they're always, it's not, it's not like starts in a certain year or something. Uh, the point is that after Augustine and Pelagius have their rather clarifying debates at the beginning of the 5th century, and of course no one wants to debate Augustine. Uh, Augustine's the most brilliant mind at the time. But after Augustine dies, um, there's not too many people that can defend his perspective against what I would call the general trend of mankind. And the general trend of mankind is always toward semi-Pelagianism. Uh, the idea of, yeah, I need God's help, but God can't do it without my help. Uh, the synergistic type stuff. So, it, so from that time to the Reformation, did it, did it kind of go backwards all the way for the next 600 years or so, or 800 years, all the way back, or did it go back and forth? No, the, the semi-Pelagianism becomes the, the, the primary uh, norm of the, of the Roman system. There were people uh, who read Augustine and tried to go back to a full Augustinian perspective, um, but they generally got themselves in big trouble. Uh, one guy we'll look at later on is a fellow by the name of Gottschalk. G-O-T-T-S, Chalk, uh, Gottschalk. And um, Gottschalk tries to sort of reintroduce Augustine's thought, um, as we'll see later on, and gets himself into a bunch of trouble uh, in, in the process. So there, you'll find people who in their reading would go, hey, this is, 
yeah, this is, this is the way it should be. But in general, uh, mankind just chafes against this, but recognizes this just doesn't, that's just not how mankind is. Man is fallen. And so, you know, this is, this is the easy way, and it's sort of the default way even, even today. Uh, most of our uh, Arminian brothers are semi-Pelagian in their understanding. It's uh, free will, you know, prevenient grace, the, the whole nine yards. They shut the door on it with Tulip, pretty much, when Arminius wanted to go back and bring some of that back in. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In order for, for the grace to fully, fully work, what's the word that should be used? Is it sufficient or efficient? Do you understand my question? Yeah, yeah. Efficient. Well, well, normally the term sufficient would be used in saying that grace alone can save. Efficient would be referring to the power that it has to actually accomplish what God intends it to accomplish. So if we're talking about God's efficient grace in bringing about regeneration, then that grace has the power to actually raise the dead sinner to life. If we're talking about God's grace being sufficient, it's sufficient without the addition of human merits or human, action, human actions and things like that. So that's how I would generally see where efficient and sufficient are distinguished from, from one another. Well, obviously, I, obviously I'm, I'm reformed. And if you're reformed, uh, Augustine is, is right. Um, Semi-Pelagianism opens the door to all of the works, salvations, uh, systems of man, uh, to the sacramental systems, to, to everything. The, the issue at the Reformation was, is God's grace sufficient? Can God save in and of himself? And the Reformers said yes. Augustine had said yes. Um, Rome said no, uh, because the sacramental system becomes, this is sort of the sacramental system, and you cannot have a meaningful sacramental system without the concept of the autonomous will of man. Because man's will has to be the will that actuates it and makes the sacramental system work. So uh, there you have, uh, now if, if some of you would like to draw the pits in a, in a nicer way or say, volunteer to, to, to do the artwork next time, uh, rather than just snickering at me, uh, okay, that's fine. It'll probably be another 20, 25 years before we do the church history thing again. But um, uh, there you go. Uh, there's the, uh, the situation with Augustine and Pelagius. Okay? All right, we're out of time. Let's, uh, let's close our, our time with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity uh, to once again look into what you've done with your people over the years to recognize that what previous generations have struggled with, we struggle with as well today. We desire to learn from their mistakes and their successes. And we thank you that you continue to build your church this day. Be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.